Chapter Twenty Two of A Mind That Found Itself by Clifford Whittingham Beers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Read by Tom Daly. Chapter Twenty Two Like fires and railroad disasters, assaults seemed to come in groups. Days would pass without a single outbreak, then would come a veritable carnival of abuse due almost invariably to the attendant's state of mind, not to an unwanted aggressiveness on the part of the patients. I can recall as especially noteworthy several instances of atrocious abuse. Five patients were chronic victims. Three of them, peculiarly irresponsible, suffered with especial regularity, scarcely a day passing without bringing to them its quota of punishment. One of these, almost an idiot, and quite too inarticulate to tell a convincing story even under the most favorable conditions, became so cowed that, whenever an attendant passed, he would circle his oppressor as a whipped cur circles a cruel master. If this avoidance became too marked, the attendant would then and there chastise him for the implied but unconscious insult. There was a young man, occupying a cell next to mine in the bullpen, who was so far out of his mind as to be absolutely irresponsible. His offense was that he could not comprehend and obey. Day after day I could hear the blows and kicks as they fell upon his body, and his incoherent cries for mercy were as painful to hear as they are impossible to forget. That he survived is surprising. What wonder that this man, who was so violent, or who was made violent, would not permit the attendants to dress him. But he had a half-witted friend, a wardmate, who could coax him into his clothes, when his oppressors found him most intractable. Of all the patients known to me, the one who was assaulted with the greatest frequency was an incoherent and irresponsible man of sixty years. This patient was restless and forever talking or shouting, as any man might have oppressed by such delusions as his. He was profoundly convinced that one of the patients had stolen his stomach, an idea inspired perhaps by the remarkable corpulency of the person he accused. His loss he would woefully voice even while eating. Of course, argument to the contrary had no effect, and his monotonous recital of his imaginary troubles made him unpopular with those whose business it was to care for him. They showed him no mercy. Each day, including the hours of the night when the night watch took a hand, he was belabored with fists, broom handles, and frequently with the heavy bunch of keys which attendants usually carry on a long chain. He was also kicked and choked, and his suffering was aggravated by his almost continuous confinement in the bullpen. An exception to the general rule, for such continued abuse often causes death, this man lived a long time, five years as I learned later. Another victim, forty-five years of age, was one who had formerly been a successful man of affairs. His was a forceful personality, and the traits of his sane days influenced his conduct when he broke down mentally. He was in the expansive phase of paresis, a phase distinguished by an exaggerated sense of well-being, and by delusions of grandeur which are symptoms of this form as well as of several other forms of mental disease. 
Paresis, as everyone knows, is considered incurable, and victims of it seldom live more than three or four years. In this instance, instead of trying to make the patient's last days comfortable, the attendant subjected him to a course of treatment severe enough to have sent even a sound man to an early grave. I endured privations and severe abuse for one month at the state hospital. This man suffered in all ways worse treatments for many months. I became well acquainted with two jovial and witty Irishmen. They were common laborers. One was a hod-carrier and a strapping fellow. When he arrived at the institution, he was at once placed in the violent ward, though his violence consisted of nothing more than an annoying sort of irresponsibility. He irritated the attendants by persistently doing certain trivial things after they had been forbidden. The attendants made no allowance for his condition of mind. His repetition of a forbidden act was interpreted as deliberate disobedience. He was physically powerful, and they determined to cow him. Of the master assault by which they attempted to do this, I was not an eyewitness, but I was an ear-witness. It was committed behind a closed door, and I heard the dull thuds of the blows, and I heard the cries for mercy, until there was no breath left in the man with which he could beg even for his life. For days that wrecked Hercules dragged himself about the ward moaning pitifully. He complained of pain in his side, and had difficulty breathing, which would seem to indicate that some of his ribs had been fractured. This man was often punished frequently for complaining of the torture already inflicted. But later, when he began to return to the normal, his good humor and native wit won for him an increasing degree of good treatment. The other patient's arch-offense, a symptom of his disease, was that he gabbled incessantly. He could no more stop talking than he could write his reason on command. Yet his failure to become silent at a word was the signal for punishment. On one occasion, an attendant ordered him to stop talking and take a seat at the further end of the corridor, about forty feet distant. He was doing his best to obey, even running to keep ahead of the attendant at his heels. As they passed the spot where I was sitting, the attendant felled him with a blow behind the ear, and in falling, the patient's head barely missed the wall. Addressing me, the attendant said, Did you see that? Yes. I replied, and I'll not forget it. Be sure to report it to the doctor, he said, which remark showed his contempt, not only for me, but for those in authority. The man who had so terribly beaten me was particularly flagrant in annoying the claims of age. On more than one occasion he viciously attacked a man of over fifty, who, however, seemed much older. He was a Yankee sailing-master, who in his prime could have thrashed his tormentor with ease. But now he was helpless and could only submit. However, he was not utterly abandoned by his old world. His wife called often to see him, and because of his condition she was permitted to visit him in his room. Once she arrived a few hours after he had been cruelly beaten. Naturally she asked the attendants how he had come by the hurts, the blackened eye and the bruised head. True to the code, they lied. The good wife, perhaps herself a Yankee, was not thus to be fooled, and her growing belief that her husband had been assaulted 
was confirmed by a sight she saw before her visit was ended. Another patient, a foreigner who was a target for abuse, was knocked flat two or three times as he was roughly forced along the corridor. I saw this little affair, and I saw that the good wife saw it. The next day she called again and took her husband home. The result was that after a few, probably sleepless, nights, she had to return him to the hospital and trust to God rather than the state to protect him. Another victim was a man sixty years of age. He was quite inoffensive, and no patient in the ward seemed to attend more strictly to his own business. Shortly after my transfer from the violent ward, this man was so viciously attacked that his arm was broken. The attendant, the man who had so viciously assaulted me, was summarily discharged. Unfortunately, however, the relief afforded the insane was slight and brief, for this same brute, like another whom I have mentioned, soon secured a position in another institution, this one, however, a thousand miles distant. Death by violence in a violent ward is, after all, not an unnatural death for a violent ward. This patient, of whom I am about to speak, was also an old man, over sixty. Both physically and mentally he was a wreck. On being brought to the institution, he was at once placed in a cell in the bullpen, probably because of his previous history for violence while at his own home. But his violence, if it ever existed, had already spent itself, and had come to be nothing more than an utter incapacity to obey. His offense was that he was too weak to attend to his common wants. The day after his arrival, shortly before noon, he lay stark naked and helpless upon the bed in his cell. This I know, for I went to investigate immediately after a wardmate had informed me of the vicious way in which the head attendant had assaulted the sick man. My informant was a man whose word regarding an incident of this character I would take as readily as that of any man I know. He came to me, knowing that I had taken upon myself the duty of reporting such abominations. My informant feared to take the initiative, for, like many other patients who believe themselves doomed to continued confinement, he feared to invite abuse at the hands of vengeful attendants. I therefore promised him that I would report the case as soon as I had an opportunity. All day long this victim of an attendant's unmanly passion lay in his cell in what seemed to be a semi-conscious condition. I took particular pains to observe his condition, for I felt that the assault of the morning might result in death. That night, after the doctor's regular tour of inspection, the patient in question was transferred to a room next to my own. The mode of transfer impressed itself upon my memory. Two attendants, one of them being he who had so brutally beaten the patient, placed the man in a sheet, and, each taking an end, carried the hammock-like contrivance, with its inert contents, to what proved to be its last resting place above ground. The bearers seemed as much concerned about their burden as one might be about a dead dog, waited and ready for the river. That night the patient died. Whether he was murdered none can ever know, but it is my honest opinion that he was. Though he might never have recovered, it is plain that he would have lived days, perhaps months. 
and had he been humanely, nay scientifically, treated, who can say that he might not have been restored to health and home? The young man who had been my companion in mischief in the violent ward was also terribly abused. I am sure I do not exaggerate when I say that on ten occasions, within a period of two months, this man was cruelly assaulted, and I do not know how many times he suffered assaults of less severity. After one of these chastisements, I asked him why he persisted in his petty transgressions, when he knew that he thereby invited such body-racking abuse. Oh, he said laconically, I need the exercise. To my mind, the man who, with such gracious humor, could refer to what was in reality torture, deserved to live a century. But an unkind fate decreed that he should die young. Ten months after his commitment to the state hospital, he was discharged as improved, but not cured. This was not an unusual procedure, nor was it in his case apparently an unwise one, for he seemed fit for freedom. During the first month of regained liberty, he hanged himself. He left no message of excuse. In my opinion, none was necessary. For aught any man knows, the memories of the abuse torture and injustice which were so long his portion may have proved to be the last straw which overbalanced the desire to live patients with less stamina than mine often submitted with meekness and none so aroused my sympathy as those whose submission was due to the consciousness that they had no relatives or friends to support them in a fight for their rights on behalf of these with my usual piece of smuggled lead pencil, I soon began to indict and submit to the officers of the institution letters in which I described the cruel practices which came under my notice. My reports were perfunctorily accepted and at once forgotten or ignored. Yet these letters, so far as they related to overt acts witnessed, were lucid and should have been convincing. Furthermore, my allegations were frequently corroborated by bruises on the bodies of the patients. My usual custom was to write an account of each assault and hand it to the doctor in authority. Frequently I would submit these reports to the attendants with instructions first to read and then deliver them to the superintendent or the assistant physician. The men whose cruelty I thus laid bare read with evident but perverted pleasure my accounts of assaults, and laughed and joked about my ineffectual attempts to bring them to book. End of chapter 22